And so I have people say to me all the time, you know, I was in a car wreck, and then they'll say, I mean, it wasn't like I went to war or anything. And I always stop them, and I'm like, what difference does that make? Like, if it was a traumatic car wreck, it was a traumatic car wreck. If you had a heart attack, and it was traumatic. If you had cancer, and it was traumatic. If you were a, a frontline health worker during this pandemic, that's all traumatic. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. My special guest this week is Jason Kander, who Barack Obama called the future of the Democratic Party. He is a former army captain who served in Afghanistan. Kander was also the first millennial ever elected to statewide office. And he is the founder and president of Let America Vote and works extensively with the Veterans Community Project. Um, Kander dropped out of politics sending quite a shock to a lot of people um, to recover from PTSD after, in his words, 10 years of running from it. And that was a big thing I wanted to talk to Kander about. Uh, Listeners who remember my conversation with Van Anderson, it's also something that Anderson was struggling from, from his vantage point as a war correspondent. So... I think with Kander, I wanted to talk about his history with PTSD and people he's worked with, as well as how he maintains the optimism he does about, he just had a daughter uh, in September, and I, I wanted to know what, you know, what is the America that she was born into, and what can we do to improve it, and Kander uh, is one of my favorite people involved in politics, well, at least he was involved in politics, and I hope he comes back because we need people like him. So I hope you enjoy Jason Kander, my guest this week on Tourist Information. Um, I came on an hour early, and you were talking about your new child, Bella, I believe, who was born in, in September. Uh, so I thought I'd ask you a softball question and just say, ask, what kind of America was she born into, in your view? Can you lay out the landscape of that? Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I have, it's an interesting way to think about it. I mean, I, I tend to be uh, an optimist by nature, um, and so... I'm not sure why exactly other than I think logically it's just, it doesn't make a lot of sense not to be. I mean, may as well be optimistic. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic about the future and not just because, you know, we just want to, we being my side, just want a presidential election. Um, I'm mostly optimistic because I've had the opportunity to spend a fair amount of time with uh, generation Z and I'm a, I'm a elder millennial. I'm just barely a millennial, but so like the, the much younger millennials and generation Z, they just make me feel really hopeful. Like I think they're going to get a lot fixed and, um, and do a lot of things right. So I like the idea of, uh, my daughter maybe getting a chance to, to benefit from that. But more than anything, um, we really like having a family <laughs> and, uh, and for a long time, uh, I mean, you know, I, I guess the answer is I didn't think about any of it in those terms. My wife and I didn't. It was like for, for a very long time, we sort of had unspokenly figured out that uh, having a second child was not going to work in, in our lifestyle at the time with me traveling constantly and also understanding that there was something going on with me that hadn't been addressed. And, and then, you know, two years after deciding to get help, I was just in a place where it made a lot of sense for us. And so uh, our son, True, really wanted a little brother or sister. And so we're really glad we did that. Well, I mean, you talk about Generation Z. You know, I share your optimism, but I'm also aware that most of the data seems to support that this generation has unprecedented levels of anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation. And I wonder, why do you think that is? Uh, you know, well, I'm not an expert. Um, I just kind of in an, is I'm kind of an expert in my own experience exclusively, but, um, as a, as an amateur, I, I would say, you know, I've seen some of the stuff that says that 
the human brain wasn't really made to um, take in the level of news and information and stimulus that we do now uh, on a daily basis. Um, I mean, if you think about just like every time you open your phone, you, you're exposed to as much information as people got in two days 100 years ago. Um, so I, I suppose that's probably part of it. Um, uh, and then another thing I wonder is, have humans just been in this condition and have we been, um, you know, operating this way for a long time and now we've learned how to measure it? Um, but really, I guess the best thing I've read about this, I don't know if you've ever read Tribe by Sebastian Younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my favorite books. And he yeah. does a, yeah, he does such a great job of sort of breaking down how Western society, particularly American society, has departed from uh, a lot of the uh, community-oriented or tribal-oriented values and behaviors that tend to drive happiness. I, I wonder, I mean, in researching you, <laughs> I wonder, like, with your, your kids, to have Barack Obama call you the future of the Democratic Party, <laughs> like, what is that like in terms of, I don't know if it would be a responsibility or a burden, or what did that mean to you to be designated that way from him? Uh, well, it was awful nice of him. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, at the time, um, I was, you know, uh, put, a, put aside post-traumatic stress for a minute, because I didn't know I had it then. Um, I just was go, go, go. I mean, I I was, you know, had just come off um, narrowly losing a, a Senate race that I wasn't supposed to have any chance to be even close in and had started a, a national campaign against voter suppression and and that kind of thing. And, and that was all going well. And, and then, you know, he made that comment and, and some other things broke my way. And next thing you knew, uh, I was one of like 50 Democrats who was at that point getting ready to run for president. Um, and so that's what my life was at that moment. And so did it feel like a burden? No, at that moment, because that was my, my singular focus was that work. It, at that moment, it felt like a break. Um, and, uh, and still hasn't at all felt like a burden. Um, in fact, you know, since then I've had the opportunity to spend some time with him and, you know, they always say, don't meet your heroes. Um, it does not apply to him. Um, he, he exceeded expectations and um, really acted as a mentor to me during during that period. And then, and then later, um, when I when my symptoms from post traumatic stress from Afghanistan uh, got worse and worse and, and got to a point where I needed to address them immediately, uh, I, I changed my life completely. And so now, you know, that experience, the whole thing of basically running for president and um, sort of living that life is a part of who I am, but it's in my past. It's a chapter, um, and uh, it's informed a lot of things for me. It's given me a lot of great opportunities to to advance causes that I care about. But the difference is um, now, like to back to your question, that sort of thing, whether it feels like a burden, and that's the big difference in my life, I guess. Well, one of the big differences in my life post uh, getting treatment for post-traumatic stress is that um, – I, I tend not to shoulder burdens in that same way anymore. I mean, uh, I used to feel, and this is common for trauma survivors, I used to feel this enormous need for redemption, and therefore, like, I just owed something to everybody all the time, and, like everybody. And uh, now I feel like I owe love and loyalty and affection to my family and, and the same plus friendship to my friends. Um and that's about it. And everything else, uh, I do it because it's something I care about and therefore want to do it, not because I feel like I owe it to anybody, which is a big difference. Mm. I wonder, there was a, a quote that Jimmy Kimmel said of you after reading your book, Outside the Wire. Uh, I conclude that candor is too funny and too smart to be in politics. His motives are suspect, and he should be removed from public service immediately. Hmm. What do you... What do you make that that a lot of people, like uh, reading more about you, I'm surprised that you want to be in politics. Not that I doubt your concern, um, but I think that speaking, Kimmel's comment is just speaking to the milieu of contemporary politics, which is reflected in 
um, popularity ratings of Congress and just politicians in general. Like, you seem like such an exception. Um, do you classify yourself as an introvert? That was one thing I wondered also. Um, well, let's work backwards there. Uh, I don't really know. Um, in some ways, yeah, in some ways. I mean, I draw a lot of energy from being around other people, um, but I also, um, you know, can really get down with hanging out by myself. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and, and just being with my family. So I, I really don't know. I'm, I think I'm one of those people who kind of is in some ways both, I guess. Um, and then uh, the thing about politics, like I, you kind of got to break down the term in politics for what I am anymore, right? Like um, I'm in politics in the sense that, I mean, I have a, a pretty popular political podcast, Majority 54. I have uh, the opportunity to engage in the national conversation when I want. And I, and I do uh, pretty often. Um, but uh, I often hear from people saying, when are you going to get back into politics? Because I'm not running for anything and I don't have any current plans to run for anything. So I consider myself in politics. I mean, I was a Biden surrogate. I served on the DNC platform committee. Um, to me, that's in politics. Um, and in the meantime, I get to have a day job where I, I serve veterans and I consider that public service. So the question of wanting to be in politics, um, you know, for me, uh, I'm involved because that's a skill set where I feel I can make a difference. And I think it's really important. Um, and as to, you know, Jimmy's comment, which was very nice, and I put that on the back of the book, uh, was I, I think what it speaks to is that people uh, so infrequently in in politics, uh, like when they look at politicians or people active in politics, they so infrequently see people who um, are candid and say things like, I don't know, or, uh, you know, I'm not good at that or whatever, uh, that um, it's really refreshing and disarming when they see it. And, uh, it, you know, it's the only profession, politics, where uh, the, the the idea of someone saying, well, you know, you just seem like a normal person, that, where that's like an enormous compliment. I mean, you would never you would never hear somebody say, like, you know what I like about my accountant? Just a normal guy. Um, like nobody would ever say that. Right. Um, and so it's just a really low bar. And, and I think when you look at some of the, some of the more successful people in politics, they are the people who have figured out, like, I'm just going to kind of let it out there. Um, and so I, I, you know, I don't know that I get any special credit for not being super self-conscious all the time, like a lot of politicians. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Back to back to kind of my initial question about the America that Bella was born into. You had a tweet, I think, a couple of days ago, where you said Donald Trump is the Iraq War of presidents. In 15 years, everyone who pushed hardest for it will act like it just happened on its own. What do you? I often think sometimes with Trump that what happens if we get a competent version of him? That's what really yeah. frightens me. And I, I've never heard your explanation for how do you account for Trump for 2016. How did that happen in your view and what do you see his legacy being? Uh, his legacy, I mean, none of it is good. Um, and as far as how do I account for it, um, how did it happen? You know, it's a lot of different things. Um, but I, I think it, it kind of goes to this misconception um, uh, on the left, which is this idea that we are in this big fight on the left between, um, you know, whether or not to be more liberal or more moderate. And I don't think that that is the, the actual, um, that's the, the right conversation to be having about how to message in like the part of the country where I'm from, right? Like the Midwest, mm -hmm. the South, like the, the parts we're trying to, to really get back. Um, because the truth is that like, if you look at, my race in 2016, like in 2012, I won a statewide race in, in Missouri. In 2016, I very nearly unseated a, a Republican incumbent. While on the same day, Trump was winning my state by 19. Um, and if you look back, like I ran a pretty progressive campaign. Um, and what I think I did differently than other people was not, it wasn't about moving to the middle. It was, I just talked to people from where I'm from talk and talked about the things that we care about. And so the, the, the riff, and I'm getting to your, to your question about Trump, the riff that we have is not one of like, are you going to 
stand up for liberal things or moderate things. It's are you going to talk about the stuff that people uh, are concerned about? Because in my view, progressive ideas tend to speak to those. And here's what I think people are concerned about, at least where I'm from, and I think most of the country, but certainly where I'm from. What people really want is they want their family to be happy, healthy, safe, and nearby. And that's really what all of it is about. So when you look back at what Trump was talking about in in 16, there's a lot of different stuff that was going on there, right? But one of them, and I don't even think, I don't know that he realized what he was doing here, but people like to, for instance, break down like the idea of whether his, whether him being against certain trade deals is what moved voters. Like I promise you, there were no voters in my part of the country that were like going down a spreadsheet of trade deals and being like, well, this one seems good for us. And this one seems that, that was not happening. Right. Um, but when you are going into towns that have had jobs leave and constantly talking about trade deals and saying they're bad, what people are hearing is I'm going to make it so that your kids can get a good job here and don't have to leave. And your grandkids can be near you and you don't have to leave your home which goes back to people want their family to be happy, to be healthy, to be safe, and to be nearby. And I think, I have to think progressive policies make all four of those things more likely to happen, but I think that we've been real good at making the argument that you'll be more likely to be healthy. We're getting better at making the argument that you'll be more likely to be safe. We, we Neither party's really figured out the happy thing, but nearby, we weren't talking to for a long time. And that's where it comes down to. It's not a problem of like having very liberal people in charge of the party. It's a problem of you know, not that this is a problem, but it's a disconnect when most of the people in charge of the party are from the places where our kids tend to move to to get good jobs. So they don't have the perspective of understanding that, like, if you live in Kansas City, you're just thinking, how do we make it so that this is a community where my kid doesn't feel they got to go to Chicago or New York or L.A. or San Francisco or whatever? And if you live in Warrensburg, Missouri, you're thinking, how do we make it so this is a community that my kid doesn't go to doesn't got to go to Kansas City? to get a good job and raise their kids. Because I just think the American dream is, you know, access to a doctor, a good school, a safe street, and having your parents, you know, 20 minutes away so that they can help with your kids. And uh, that's what I think we're all after. And we just have to speak to those things. And, you know, purposely or not, um, Trump stumbled upon a message that seemed to speak to that in 2016. Now, I also like to point out that 54% of the country voted for somebody not named Donald Trump in 2016. So mm -hmm. we have to be careful not to learn too many lessons from it. Well, I mean, and, and what do you make of Bernie Sanders' platform? Uh, almost every one of his major issues was in line with the majority of Americans in terms of supporting it. Mm -hmm. I mean, does that encourage you? And, and I'm wondering, like, how does the other side get away with referring to these policies as them being radical? By definition, they do not seem to be radical at all. Well, I think a lot of the way that anybody gets away with um, with putting a negative brand on something is if if the alternative argument isn't really made, and it, or if it's made mm -hmm. apologetically, right? So. <laughs> so like if you go out and you say over and over again that, you know, up is down uh, and um, down never comes up and never like in a coordinated fashion says, no, 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 we're, 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 we're actually down is down. And like, we think that's fine. <laughs> right. Like uh, then, you know, people are going to be like, mm, down doesn't really seem to believe in itself. <laughs> so I, I just think that that's how it works. And so does that mean you have to go out and, and argue for a, a a very progressive you know, policy at the level of any Sanders. No, but it means you can't be afraid of it because the truth is like the average voter who's a swing voter is not in the middle. That's the myth, right? Sometimes they're way on the left. Sometimes they're way on the right. Sometimes they're right in the middle. What they are are people with regular lives who, you know, are not watching cable news uh, all the time. In fact, they're mostly paying attention to, uh, you know, who they're going to vote for in about the last three weeks before the election uh, because they're good citizens and they're going to vote, but they got other stuff going on and they're going to pay attention to who seems to really believe in what they're saying. And then when they determine, Oh, they really believe in it, then they're going to consider whether what you're saying makes sense to them. And so uh, they don't make a big distinction between, um, you know, a very moderate to conservative Democrat and a very liberal Democrat. They, they mostly don't to them. Like they're liberals. They're all liberals. So if that's the case, uh, you know, like if, if they're not going to make much of a distinction between 
a healthcare policy that involves a public option, um, but not single payer and single payer, then why would we not just be making an argument uh, overall for the idea of like covering more people with healthcare? Why do we mm-hmm. got to have a constant argument over which one it is? When you're doing that, when you're out of power, it's basically like student Congress in high school. Like you're having an academic argument over things that you're not in a position to make happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I wonder, I, I want to get to your service, which you've been so candid about, and also your dealing with uh, PTSD. You had a tweet today that said the Taliban used to kidnap or kill me in my nightmares every night. Last night I dreamt it was the first day of school and I had a new literature teacher who loved baseball and didn't assign seats. Um, PTSD, hashtag PTSD treatment works. Um, I was thinking as I was reading a lot about you, about how America has shifted from the legacy of Thomas Eagleton and his vice presidential um, being the presidential vice presidential nominee under George McGovern and the disclosure of him suffering with depression, suicidal ideation, and getting electroshock therapy tanked that candidacy, it does seem that you get a lot of support. But I wonder, is that your sense of it, that America has really shifted in embracing PTSD and not seeing it as a weakness, especially in the age of a time where Trump can call somebody like John McCain a loser for being a POW. And I, I, I kind of presume that he might view uh, people. What's the, I, 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 my dad was talking to me. I was talking to him about you uh, that in, for soldiers going off to Vietnam, there was what was called resilience training. And mm-hmm. I, I could see Trump, seeing people suffering from PTSD as being less resilient, like as if it's some sort of terror. He said so. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he said he, he, he told an audience of combat veterans that, you know, they were strong because they didn't have PTSD, having no idea whether the people in the audience had PTSD. The fact in truth is I'm sure several of them did Uh, and saying, you know, basically saying that those of us who are combat veterans who, end up with post-traumatic stress that we're weak. So, I mean, and look, is it any surprise that that's how Donald Trump sees things? <laughs> like, no. no, it's no surprise. Um, so do I think America is, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that, um, that it's a different environment than it was for, for Thomas Eagleton. I mean, um, you know, nobody ever talks about it. Eagleton was a World War II vet. So that may have played a role as well. And look, um, I, when I made my announcement, uh, I did not know what I was going to encounter. In fact, um, I had spent a decade hiding the idea of me having PTSD from myself and therefore from the world, because like a lot of veterans, that was an unacceptable diagnosis to me, both in my career. And, and frankly, like we haven't done anywhere near a good enough job of making sure people understand that it is something you can recover from or, you know, that, it, that it's an injury and you can treat it because that's why a lot of us are so resistant to get the diagnosis or get treated for it. Because if you don't know that you can get better, and I didn't know that, um, it feels like a death sentence, you know? And so uh, it feels like something to be avoided. So when I made that announcement, all I knew was that I was giving up the one thing that was going really well, my career, uh, to take a leap of faith that I could that I could get better, not knowing if I could. And I've been uh, really pleased at how it's been received and being able to play a role in breaking down that stigma is the most important thing I've ever done in public service. And now I'm, I'm I try to. I, there are no role models really for us, either in fiction or nonfiction, of people who have come through post-traumatic stress treatment and gotten to post-traumatic growth. I mean, if you think about what you see portrayed in movies or even, even shown on the news, it's almost exclusively stories of people who are battling it untreated um, or unsuccessful in treatment. When in reality, you know, if you look at the VA's numbers, uh, almost everybody who commits to the program gets better and gets to the point where the symptoms don't disrupt their lives. So, uh, we need more people to know that. So I feel like now my role is to be that role model that I didn't have. So I'm, I'm writing a book about, you know, my journey from post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth because 
I need more people to know, you know this is an injury. And if it's like any other injury, if you don't treat it, it's going to get worse. If you do treat it, it's going to get better. Hmm. Well, so it's interesting because I had a guest on who was a correspondent for HBO who's covered many, many conflicts, Ben Anderson, and he now is getting treatment for PTSD from covering war for many years. And similar to, to you, I think, is it was sort of amorphous trying to pinpoint how he was suffering from it. You know, what, what was the exposure? What was the, the catalyst exactly? Like, it just seemed very complex for him to address it in a lot of ways for many years, especially coming from England and a lot of relatives who were from World War II and other areas of conflict where the stiff upper lip and resilience and all of that was a very high premium was placed on it. Um, so I, I wonder for you, um, what, you know, the genesis for you going, going to Afghanistan was 9-11, is that correct? Yeah. Um, what did you imagine Afghanistan would be, and what, how did the reality differ from that? Um, gosh, it was so long ago now, it's, it's kind of almost hard to remember. But, I mean, I think I'm like most, most young Americans, you know, in their early 20s who went off to war. What I knew about that was, you know, what I'd been trained in and what I'd seen in the movies. So, you know, you, you have a more typical conception of conventional war and, and also you're in your early 20s and you're going off to fight and you feel strong and bulletproof and and that's a pretty common story and uh, and that's that's how I was um, and by the way while you're there at least in my in my case while I was there and I was doing it I didn't really have any concept of the idea that it was doing any damage to me I also um, after after the first few times you go outside the wire uh, it's not that you don't feel fear you do but it becomes normal to feel it. And, it, and as a result, you don't really notice it. Uh, it. It's hard to explain. And that sounds maybe unbelievable, but it's, it's just um, anything can become normal. And not to mention the fact that like when you're in a combat zone and you're outside the wire, you're so fully utilized, like your, your, your body and your brain, I mean, you're bringing everything you have to that task. And there is something exhilarating about that, particularly when you're young. And so a lot of the stuff that I later had to unpack in therapy and that, um, you know, became the grist from, from my nightmares and, and my hypervigilance and all that kind of stuff and intrusive thoughts, at the time that it was happening, it was frightening, but it was also exciting. And it was, um, it was an adventure. And so I had no way to really understand while that was happening that it was going to be real bad for me um and it took it took some time for that to evolve uh and it it started as soon as i got home but it evolved and got worse over time so um you know it, like in my particular case what I, I regardless of what i expected i mean when i got there um i was given an option i was told hey uh we got Two, I was an intelligence officer, and I was told there's 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 two roles here. You can pick one, um, you know, because there were two vacancies that they had. Um, one was uh, to do you know, mostly intelligence analysis and kind of work the night shift and mostly work a desk. Uh, the other was to do some analysis, um, but to uh, also go out and collect uh, a lot of information. And in this case, it was to to collect information on um, yeah, espionage and uh, corruption and, and that kind of thing within the Afghan government, basically the, the bad guys that were pretending to be good guys um, and that we needed to know more about because our top level people were dealing with them. And that was obviously pretty dangerous. I was 20, whatever I was, 24, 25 and thought, well, that seems more important. That's what I came here to do. So I went, and I did that. And, uh, and that just involved being in a lot of rooms with, you know, just me and my translator and then some, people whose allegiances I couldn't fully know uh, and not knowing whether I was going to get out of those rooms alive. And so, you know, I came home and I was like, well, I, you know, I didn't have to kill anybody. I didn't have anything blow up next to me. So how could I have trauma? Not understanding that, you know, constantly going into that situation and being on that edge, uh, being by myself, essentially in a lot of it, that has an effect on you. 
Um, and so that's the way in which it, my expectations were an issue, right? Is that like I had, I came back and I had friends who had been in a lot of firefights and, and I felt like, well, how can I have post-traumatic stress when I didn't experience that, that more typical idea of combat, that or more conventional idea of combat. And so it took a long time for me to realize that, you know, well, frankly, I had to be in therapy finally before I realized that ranking a trauma and comparing trauma is the biggest waste of time. Um, my, my, my first uh, appointment at the VA with a clinical social worker, she asked me, why did it take you over 10 years? And I explained what I just explained to you. And she said, well, let me get the stress. She said, you know, or she asked, she said, your friends who were in firefights, what do they say about what you did over there? And I said, you know, they always say they couldn't have done it, but I figure they're just being nice. And she said, well, look, what they went through is traumatic, no doubt. She said that they were with their friends. It lasted for a few minutes. And then when they came home, they didn't like get into, you know, gun battles all the time. She was like, you were out for hours at a time, basically alone. Nobody knew where you were. You had no backup, no chance of being saved. Um, and you were in the most dangerous place on earth uh, with some of the most dangerous people on earth. And uh, she was like, and then when she explained it that way, I was like, well, that, that sounds pretty traumatic. And she's, yeah. And then you came home and what'd you do? You went to meetings um, for work, you know? And, uh, and so it took all, it took trauma, it took therapy for me to unpack the idea that my brain has no idea what somebody else's brain experienced. And I wasted 10 years, you know, constantly trying to rank it when I could have just gone and addressed it. Yeah, it's interesting because I read in the New York Times profile, you said you were never shot or blown up. No one close to you was wounded and you never had to kill anyone. And yet this led to you being racked by nightmares, depression, suicidal thoughts. Um, I wonder what's instilled in us, you know, with all this discussion of toxic masculinity that we don't hear enough about the courage it takes to admit our sensitivity to these things and how that can be uh, avail us to the damage of trauma. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, and that's a big, it, it's an important discussion. The idea of like getting more people to understand that um, getting help is strength, not weakness. But, but I think for a lot of people, including for combat veterans, there's another really important aspect to this that's not talked about enough, which is, um, that uh, when you're in the military, um, there's a really necessary form of brainwashing that happens. And I say necessary because I'm not um, trying to, you know, denigrate it. Uh, and that brainwashing is like the moment you step off the bus in basic, the message that is pushed across to you at every, in every direction, from every direction, is uh, this is no big deal. What you're going through is no big deal. Um, and other people have it worse. And the reason that's so important is, uh, if you didn't believe that, you wouldn't do any of that stuff, right? Like, like right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back into the next meeting with a warlord who may want to put my head on a stick outside of his building uh, without anybody knowing I was there to back me up. Like, I wouldn't do that again if I didn't, if I wasn't absolutely sure that what I was doing was cake compared to other people. And you know, my buddies wouldn't have gone out on another patrol where they might get shot at if they weren't sure that there was some other platoon going through something worse. Uh, and, you know, uh, really one of my best friends who um, has been a mentor to me in the process of getting help, he said to me once, he said, you know, uh, somewhere there's a World War II vet sitting in a VFW hall explaining, yeah, I was first wave at D-Day, but I was in the back of the landing craft. It's no big deal. And, you know, because that's what they teach us. Now, that's all important. Like you've got to you, – you can't get people to soldier if you don't, if you, don't you know, put that, that energy in them. The problem is nobody really flips that switch back off when you leave the service. So as a result, you know, you leave the service and you're like me and a lot of other vets and you're like having problems, but you still believe that what you did was no big deal because that's what you were taught. And, and so you have to get over the hump of realizing maybe what you did was a big deal or a big enough deal to cause you to have post-traumatic stress in order to even get help. Because instead, it's not just a matter of like feeling like it would be weakness that oversimplifies it. And unfortunately, that's how we talk about it too often. It is much worse than that. It is, I felt for 10 years, like if I said I had post-traumatic stress, that that was stolen valor, that that was no different than if I claimed I had a purple heart or a bronze star with V or something when I didn't, right? To me, that yeah. was the same. And, um, and it was, it was, it would be, you know, 
completely disrespectful to friends who who had been through something worse uh, in my view and and it just it took it took me getting help to realize like oh that was a waste of my time like i went through something really hard i got hurt got to address it what do you what do you make of the fact that ptsd is now in such common parlance amongst just people all the time i you know i had a, sh- a shitty dentist appointment i had ptsd from the drill or, or or I think another one would be like a parent died and I'm suffering PTSD when PTSD has its own definition and it's supposed to be out of normal damage that is incurred, something exceptional. Um, and yet I, it's hard for me to ignore the statistics that apart from like a glaring murder rate that the U.S. has, that two and a half times more people commit suicide. Like what is – and not to mention deaths of despair and the opioid epidemic and, and, and that as well. But I just, I just mean speaking more broadly on the issue of trauma, um, it just seems to be exploding in this country in ways that there, there are not parallels in other, in other comparable countries. You know what I mean? Like, is there something mm-hmm. about being, I noticed this as somebody who's lived in the United States for 10 years, that the moment I go to the airport to fly anywhere else, I lose 70% of my anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I, I don't mean anything against America. I love this country, but I just mean, I notice that immediately. I, I've never been more intimidated by sort of entering America and dealing with agents here to come in um, than anywhere else. And I just wonder why it's such a paranoid nation there's just so much fear here on the news everywhere well, we've become really disconnected from one another i mean you know this is the longest consecutive period in american history without some form of mandatory service uh it is you know other things have changed right i mean that you don't really have shared experience with other people it used to be that you went to work and you went to the water cooler to talk to somebody and there was a one in three chance you all saw the same thing on TV last night. And certainly you digested the same news either way. Um, so we're, we've become very disconnected from one another. And at this point, it's it's hard to nail down what the national American identity is. It's like one in three of us watch the Super Bowl. Everybody has a strong opinion on Taylor Swift one way or the other. Like it's, it, it, there's a disconnectedness that I think really contributes to that anxiety and uh, inflames or and inflames that fear, right? Because if you're disconnected from people, you're more likely to be afraid of those people. Um, so I think that that's part of it. Um, as far as like PTSD and common, you know, colloquial parlance, like it doesn't really bother me at all. Like I'm, I'm used to that. Uh, I also, you know, I've only even known that I, really had like I knew I had problems before but I've only really known that it was post-traumatic stress for a little over two years and so prior to that I'm sure I used it that way right so I I don't hold anybody accountable for it also I tend to think that if we become really judgy about you know people using the term that way I really don't have any interest in increasing the barriers for people to you know to uh, accept the idea that they've had trauma because whether you served in the military or what, like oh, uh, lots of people have trauma. Like, frankly, if you lose a parent, there's no reason that could be traumatic. I mean, I think that's very traumatic, and, you know? And, and so I have people say to me all the time, you know, I was in a car wreck and then they'll say, I mean, it wasn't like I went to war or anything. And I always stop them and I'm like, what difference does that make? Like if it was a traumatic car wreck, it was a traumatic car wreck. If you had a heart attack and it was traumatic, if you had, cancer and it's traumatic if you are a, a frontline health worker during this pandemic that's all traumatic like and ranking that against you know me being in rooms with warlords who may want to kidnap me like what the hell good is that doing you um it doesn't it doesn't matter right like it's it's no different than when i was ranking you know my work as an intelligence officer to people who would receive uh, you know the medal of honor like what the hell good was that doing me? It, so, um, so I just don't have any interest in uh, in raising big barriers of entry into getting help. Like if if something's not right, something's not right. Got to fix yeah. it. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because I I remember reading Catcher in the Rye as a kid and just thinking it's meant it, I'm, I'm being taught it because this is how students are meant to feel 
I was never given any context that this was a, a counterintelligence officer in World War II who was completely suffering from PTSD and spent 10 years on this book, which makes a lot more which makes a lot more sense as somebody coming back with PTSD to civilian life in New York, where the most dangerous place for him is his home. Uh, he's I got to reread it now. Well, I, wonder I, what I wonder what you'd make of it because I mean, Salinger and also Salinger's hero Hemingway, who's another war veteran who was blown up and had multiple mm-hmm. concussions and shows a lot of signs of PTSD. Um, I just wonder that this romanticized notion of war, which I think you're doing a great deal to to break down that romanticism to explain the real nuts and bolts of its impact on you through through the trauma. I think Salinger was doing the same thing in that book. It was just dismissed glibly as all kids go through this. Just listen <laughs> to us kids. Um, it's interesting. Um, I wonder for you, who who were some of your heroes growing up? What were some books that you loved or that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, my heroes growing up, um, my parents, um, my, uh, there was a, there's a guy named George Brett, who uh, is the only uh, Hall of Famer uh, to play for the Royals. He played his entire career for the Kansas City Royals. He was the third baseman. Sure. And then later the first baseman. And the reason he was my hero uh, was, you know, my dad would always point out to me, when we we would go see him play, or we'd watch him on TV, and, and my dad would always uh, show me how George Brett never gave up on a play ever. And like when George Brett would hit a, you know, one hopper back to the pitcher, my dad would always say, you know, watch him, and he would sprint as hard as he could to first base, knowing he had no chance of, of being safe. And uh, and so that was like very formative for me, you know. Um, like my dad kind of taught me that you just hustle. You hustle all the time. You hustle on the field. My dad was also my baseball coach, you know, and and I took I took that for the rest of my life. And so now, like, you know, within our little family, with our seven-year-old son, like, our family motto uh, is, um, you know, is, is try hard, never quit, have fun. And um, and so, I, you know, that stuff shaped me a lot. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of books that I read when I was young that made a big impression on me. Yeah, I guess there's not that many that really jump out. I did read John McCain's book um, when I was younger. I read I read uh, Kennedy's. I read PT 109. You know all that stuff. Um, and so I suppose the stuff that shaped me a lot were movies and tales of uh, people being tested and stepping up and doing their their duty, right? And so that's why, like prior to 9/11, even I was. I was really wrestling with the idea that I had never been tested and what had I really done to serve my country. And so then when 9-11 happened, it was just a very obvious natural thing to me that I was going to go serve. Did you find that the way you would imagine that would be clashed with the reality in a way that was troubling? How do you mean? I just mean, you know, we're in a country where everybody who serves immediately – we are tremendously inculcated with we have to respect all service. You know, we, uh-huh. you know, again and again and again in this era where wars are becoming increasingly troubling since World War II, we just get a lot more World War II because it's just like a clean war for people to digest. Sure. It's very comfortably binary. We're almost oh, all of, we're all the other ones. It seems like the legacies are are not are pretty messy for people to deal with, and they'd rather not talk about them a lot of the time. Yes, you mean like confronting the idea of like, you know, the Iraq War was was a terrible idea, and I was signing up around that time, and all that kind of stuff, and um, a little bit, but mostly no. And the reason is because um, once you're in, uh, you're doing the work. Like it, it doesn't take long for it to no longer be a like you. In, in my case. I enlisted because it was about my country, right? That's why I went in. And then by the time you're in, it's about the person next to you. Yeah. And and so, um, yeah, like I was, I, I, I wanted to go to Afghanistan, not Iraq. I mean, it was the same uh, as far as chance of survival, but it was, I, I did think one was bullshit and the other, uh, you know, I went to 06 or 07 and I didn't, I didn't think Afghanistan was bullshit. It made sense to me at that time. Um, and 
and I felt bad for my friends who were who were in Iraq. Um, I would have gone to Iraq if uh, if that's where they had wanted to send me. I volunteered for deployment, and if, if they had said, okay, it's Iraq, I would have gone and done that because I felt that if I did my job well, I could help some more people come home. That's what I wanted. To, that was my aspiration anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. But I was I was glad that it was Afghanistan because I liked being able to wake up every day and feel like I understood what the mission was and why we were there. Um, yeah. Now I don't know. Don't think that that's the case now, but it was for me in '06 or '07. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, there was some of that, but for the most part, uh, honestly, I loved the military. I took to it very well. I didn't. That's that was how it didn't meet my expectation. I thought I was going to go do this thing, and it would be hard, and I wouldn't probably like it, but it was the right thing. And instead, um, yeah, it was hard, and and that's part of what I liked about it. In fact, I loved it. Um, it's the best job I've ever had. And, um, and so when I, it was a very difficult decision for me to leave the the guard in 2011, when it was just things had come to a point where it just made sense for me to, to do that. I had planned to do, to do t- at least 20 years. Um, so it's, it's, it suited me well. And that, that was the bigger surprise to me. I, I don't mean this as a loaded question, but do you think that there's a narcotic quality to it that becomes addictive? Uh, and well, if if you mean you know being in a combat zone, yes, I mean it's adrenaline. I mean absolutely. But in terms of the military, what was what I loved so much about it was the the feeling of purpose and meaning and order and camaraderie and being a part of something greater than yourself. It made sense to me. Um, and as for um. As for the, you know, yeah, being being in Afghanistan and constantly being fully utilized in your body and your mind, yeah, there's no question that that is. It's, it's not that it's it, it is addictive, but it's also once you've done that, um, it, it's you know, I used to say before I understood anything about post traumatic stress or what I was going through, I would try to describe it to my wife in the first few months I came home as. You know, it's like I went over there with a person who had the full complement of emotions in my toolbox, uh, you know, ready to pull them out and use them and, you know, just like anybody else. And I, and then over there, I really only needed three or four uh, mm. because you, you narrow it down to what you most need, right? It's like survival stuff. And then you come home and you're supposed to start employing all these others again and you kind of don't remember how. And it, And in a way, your brain and your body were like, much more comfortable in the simpler system where you just needed three or four. And, uh, and so I think that is a very difficult adjustment, right? So in, there's something very appealing about going back to a situation where, you know, like if it's golf where you really only need three or four clubs, you don't need to carry all these others around. Right. How do you think PTSD and your recovery, your ongoing recovery from it has changed you as a father and as a leader? Uh, it's just made me better. I mean, first, you know, I always said, and I still believe that, you know, even, even if you put aside the experience in Afghanistan, just the training to become a leader in the military has made me better at everything I do. But then obviously over time, like the symptoms that resulted from post-traumatic stress, they, they took me out of the ability to be present and then and took me out of my family. Um, and that, that degraded my ability to be a good husband and a good father. Um, and now, I mean, I'm a constant presence in my, in my family's life. And I don't just mean physically. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm present most of the time. Um, I'm a really good dad and it, it matters to me more than anything. And I used to say that, right? Like, cause I could, I could mimic the human emotions. I could, I could do all that. I understood what I was supposed to say and feel, and I could, it was like it was on the other side of a wall. I couldn't quite reach it. So I would say, you know, there's nothing more important to me than my family. But my family wasn't quieting the noise in my mind like a dogged pursuit of uh, my political ambition was. So that's what I cared about more. That's what I prioritized more. And now it's just the opposite. Like now if, if something doesn't go well for me at work, um, you know, I, it it's a it's annoying and I, and I want to fix it, but it doesn't take me out of like out of my head or into my head for like two days, right? Like whereas if something you know 
something's off with my son or my wife, you know, like that's got to get fixed or I'm not going to be able to do anything else. So I flipped that completely mm. and I'm really proud of it. I mean, I, I have designed my life around making sure that I, I can coach my son's baseball team and I can, I can always make sure that I'm the one who gets him to his activities that I pick him up at school every day that I drop him off in the morning, you know, like, that's a big, I'm, I'm a completely different person and I like the person I am now and I'm enjoying the hell out of it. And that's a pretty big difference. Has this either detracted from or strengthened your resolve to one day run for president? Oh, I substantially detracted from it. Um, I, I, you know, I guess it's possible that I'll do that at some point. But the difference is I spend zero time thinking about how to make that happen. Um, I'm just sort of aware that I have the minimum platform to be able to credibly do that one day if I choose to. But I, there's no part of me right now that's like, oh, I'm going to choose to do that, right? Like, it's just I I used to spend a great deal of time thinking about gaming out and planning out the future for me because the present was deeply unpleasant and it was yet another of many different strategies I had, it turns out, to avoid being in my own head uh, and being in the present because it was difficult. And now the present is quite fun. I'm enjoying it. And that means I don't have to spend time thinking about the future. And I pretty much don't. Um, I uh, I like how things are. So, you know, um, you know, maybe one day I'll do that. But I have no idea. And I'm not doing anything to make that happen. I guess my last question, Jason, is uh, I looked it up yesterday. The estimates are we'll have 565,000 deaths by April 1st because of covid I guess that would place us probably by May May or June, we would surpass the Civil War total of 700,000 deaths. Mm. Um, if you were in, or have you thought about, if you were in Biden's shoes right now, uh, how, would you, how do you feel about his prospects? How optimistic would you be if, if these were the cards you were dealt as president with where he is right now? I think there's no doubt it's the toughest hand that's ever been dealt to an incoming president. Um, at least in modern times, um, you know, obviously you could, you know, Truman, Lincoln, I mean, there were some people with some pretty tough hands. Um, but, uh, I think he's doing things right. I mean, you know, I saw just today where he announced that he's going to invoke the defense production act, um, to increase the amount of vaccines that'll go out. I mean, that should have been done at the beginning of this thing, not just for vaccines. It should have been done for testing. It should, I mean, it's why, why would you leave that thing on the shelf when it's clearly it's clearly a tool that you should bring to the cause? So uh, I've had the good fortune to get to know um, the president-elect a bit, uh, and he's a good and decent man who's going to do what he believes is right, and he's not he's he's clearly not making choices to. Um, try and affect some four-year down-the-road re-election. Like, that's not what he's doing, and that's the best way to handle the situation. So it's hard to be optimistic about a situation as dire as this, but uh, I'm confident that he is going to um, going to make the decisions that are the best decisions given the hand he's been dealt. And how do you feel about uh, Trump as he's leaving, as he frees all these political prisoners? Uh, I'm thinking about political, but I mean, Roger Stone and the like. Oh yeah. No, I I was, I took it as sarcasm. Um, uh, I, uh, I'm enjoying thinking about him less and less. Um, (laughs) it would be how I'd put it. You know, I mean, it's, I have all sorts of thoughts about the guy as do a lot of people, but at this point he is a, he's not deserving of my time or my energy and he's not deserving of any of our times or energy. Um, he, Let's let's move on, and and for me that means I'm I'm done arguing about him. Um, he's just not worthy of it. 
Uh, we're better than that. I just I'm ready to move on as a country and try and, uh, and and you know not to sound like ridiculous or corny like to, to use this term, but I think I'm just ready to build back better. You know, and that's I I mean I hate to end this interview sounding like a toady for um, you know and using the the slogan of uh, the Biden campaign, but it's the right thing. It's what we got to do, and I'm just. You know, there was a moment at the beginning of this pandemic that was the closest I feel like things have felt uh, in a long time to that feeling that we had just after 9-11, which was a sense of we're going through something together. And going back to that book we talked about a few minutes ago, Tribe, you know, Sebastian Younger talks about the research that showed that during the, um, the Blitz in Britain in World War II, that the levels of, you know, actual like fulfillment and happiness and, you know, were high and that the levels of depression and sadness were low because people were going through something together. They were going through something collectively. And one of the, and, and Trump has done, there's, there's a smorgasbord of things you could pick and say that they're the worst things he's done. But one of the worst things that he did was look at that situation where America was ready to go through something together and to lick it together and say, uh-uh, I'm going to destroy this and just tear it down and make it political and, and use it as an opportunity for divisiveness. And, uh, and I'm hopeful that we are going to have some ability to have leadership again that is interested in us going through this together, beating it together. That's the kind of stuff that makes me really proud to be an American. And uh, and I think that that's what President like Biden has in mind. Do you think we're capable of that with all of the disinformation about vaccines and politicization of wearing masks? I mean, I didn't think we could be this divisive about just basic science. It's like we're arguing gravity at times. And yet, I mean, Rubio got his vaccination despite a lot of hollering at the outset. I mean, at some point, do people just kind of suck it up and try to pretend that they didn't stand where they did last month? I mean, I just wonder, are we capable of coming back together after this? We, as a people, are enormously capable. But leadership matters a lot. And um, so, look, our, you know, people in Congress who are out for their own stuff, are they capable? I don't know. But... Um, the American people are not only capable of being led, they're eager to be led. And it's a question of whether they're going to get that opportunity. I, the president-elect is absolutely going to do that. Um, the question of whether Congress goes along, that kind of thing, sure. Like, and, yes, there are all sorts of disparate and um, polarizing influences in our society. But, yeah, like as a country, we're capable of doing really big things. Um, but it takes leadership. And it takes unified leadership. Um, so, look, I think that if I think that if President Trump had come out and said you got to wear a mask and this is and, and and taken all the science seriously, and if he had done everything against you know his character and actually led, I think we would be in a completely different place. Oh, and by the way, I think he would have been reelected. Um, so, but as a country and with this virus, we'd be in a completely different place if he had just led. Um, and and that and leading means telling people the truth. People are, you know, capable of hearing difficult news, and they appreciate it when you tell them. And uh, and so I think I think we're going to see more of that. Are you optimistic about the Georgia runoffs and what that can mean for the Democratic Party? Yeah, but I have no idea. Um, mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm optimistic because it's a binary choice, optimism or pessimism. So, and <laughs> I mean, you may as well be optimistic, but, uh, and what I, what I mean is like, I don't know. I don't look at any of the polls. I have no idea what they say. And if they said good things, I would ignore it. If they said bad things, I would ignore it. So I do my part by trying to, you know, steer people toward giving money and like, and organizing and all that. But I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, but I'm also not going to stake everything on it. Like if we win those two seats, awesome. We're going to get a lot of great stuff done. If we don't, we're going to get some good stuff done. Um, so uh, I'm not going to, I'm not interested in making it like yet another all or nothing moment. I, I, I tend to think that's one of our problems. Like 
we we tend to think everything is about elections and that all progress gets done in elections. I mean, it's just not true. Um, it's, it's it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it, by the way, it's a relay marathon. You just keep handing it off. Never, no finish line. I'm glad you're optimistic. I try to stay on that side, but it is not always easy. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, what do you get from being pessimistic? Nothing. So. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you. I do too. Take care. Right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening.